Welcome to our latest Coffee Break podcast. With national rail strikes happening this week and the threat of more strikes not only in the rail industry but across other public services threatened, we are joined today by Julian Hemming, partner and member of our industrial relations team at Osborne Clark. The team has considerable industrial relations experience with more than 80 years between them advising on strikes and other forms of industrial action. So Julian, I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective on this week's developments. Um, So should these strikes take us by surprise? Thanks, Catherine, and thanks for speaking to me about this interesting and disruptive issue. I think it is important to remember that industrial disputes very rarely come as a surprise. Mostly, but not always, industrial action is taken in unionised workplaces where there is a tradition of collective bargaining. So that means in areas such as obviously the railways, teaching, the NHS, transports and logistics and so on and other public bodies, most disputes are going to be resolved through dialogue in the collective bargaining process between the employer and the employees. And often the relationships between the two parties are are pretty good and those negotiations go well. Collective bargaining is designed to achieve agreement across either an entire workforce or across national industry like the railways. And many companies and unions have good and effective industrial relations to achieve that. So the fact the strikes have gone ahead, is that quite unusual then? Strikes or other industrial action are usually a last resort, not least because trade unions have to go through a complex balloting process and notification to the employer before they can begin industrial action. And that includes giving the employer seven days prior notice of the first ballot, giving the employer a copy of the voting paper. There must be a turnout in the ballot of at least 50% of the union members entitled to vote. There must be a majority of those members voting in favour of the industrial action. The union must announce the result of the ballot to their members and to the employer. And the union must give at least 14 days notice before the start of the industrial action. And generally, the action must start within six months of the date of the ballot. So all of those steps are designed to give employers plenty of visibility as to what is going to happen and to give both sides an opportunity to resolve the the dispute before industrial action happens. Thanks, Julian. Um, Here, obviously, the rail employers and the unions appear to still be negotiating, although obviously with a lot of difficulty. So why is the strike still happening now? Well, there's a long-held practice by the rail unions of regularly balloting for industrial action, particularly around periods like summer holidays and Christmas, so that they are ready and in a position to take industrial action when they feel that, that they need to. It's quite often the case that even when the unions have a mandate for industrial action, they won't take it, either because the dispute has been resolved or because they want to delay the action until it can have the greatest impact. And I think that is what we're seeing now. This is a time when the the unions believe they can have the maximum impact. And and clearly we all feel that. Thanks, Julian. And the legal position on industrial action, the law in this area is quite complicated, isn't it? Yes, Catherine, it is a complex area. And the key statute is the Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act 1992, which is effectively known as TOLRECA. Keen students and historians will know that this is a piece of Tory legislation which has been developed over a period of time since the miners' strike in the days of Mrs Thatcher, with the specific aim of limiting the powers of trade unions to call for industrial action. As you can tell, I'm treading a delicate political line here, but it is fair to say that there are a lot of rules that trade unions have to follow, and if they get it wrong, 
they can be subject to the employer going to court to seek an immediate injunction to stop industrial action. And in the worst case of the union, their funds and bank accounts can be frozen to stop industrial action. And it was this action, this, this seizing of the funds that really did for Arthur Scargill and the miners union during the miners strike and led them to calling off the strike in the end. So with these kinds of risks in mind, trade union lawyers work very hard to make sure that they don't fall into all of the traps. In particular, trade unions have to make sure that any industrial action complies with what is known as the golden formula. So it has to be in contemplation or furtherance of a trade dispute between workers and their employer relating to a limited number of issues largely relating to the workers terms and conditions of employment. So all of these steps means that we often advise our employer clients on how to deal with these matters when the union perhaps get it wrong. Thanks Julian and sort of one thing we've been hearing on the news is you know is, is there a right to strike? Um, that's something that's come up quite a lot in the um, media over the last few days. Yeah, that's right, Catherine. Well, this this is a subtle area, and there's not actually a right to strike without going through the set rules that need to be followed, because any employee who goes on strike will be in breach of their individual contract of employment. And you'll often hear that striking workers won't actually get paid for the days that they are on strike or taking other industrial action. So strikes are not without pain for the strikers. However, provided the union gets the balloting process right, which I've already described, and notifies the employer, employer of the right things, they and their members have immunity from legal attack for what is known as valid industrial action. Where the union does get the balloting process right, the courts have ruled that the industrial action still has to be proportionate to achieving a, leg a legitimate aim. And this means that the industrial action has to be taken for an overriding reason of public interest, which in this case is the protection of the rights of workers to fair pay. It has to be suitable to achieving the aim, and this requirement can come under scrutiny where an employer makes an improved pay offer, for example, and the union doesn't accept it. There'll be questions about whether the action they're taking is proportionate, and the action should not go beyond what is necessary to achieve the union's goal. So unions have to be careful about having too many strikes or too much disruption. So that is the pressure point on the unions at the moment. But trade unions can still, in theory, be sued for interfering in contracts between businesses where one business is subject to industrial action and another business suffers as a result of that. They can't get their supplies or whatever it is. But such cases are quite rare because often the disputes are resolved before that happens. But whatever your political persuasion, you can see how it is a privilege of our democracy that workers have a right to withdraw their labour, provided the right processes are followed. And these principles are found in other democratic bodies. For example, it's very common in the EU as well. Thanks, Julian. And can you just explain what a work to rule is? Is that a form of industrial action as well? A work to rule is where employees work to the strict terms of their contract. For example, strictly working from nine to five and not working any discretionary overtime. Whilst this is not strictly a form of industrial action because it's complying with the contract, it can be an area fraught with problems for trade unions because it can be a very fine line between working to rule and breaching a long-term long-established custom and practice, for example, of working voluntary overtime. And where that happens, a union can find themselves in difficulty facing injunction proceedings because, in fact, by working to rule, they have crossed a line of taking industrial action. Thanks, Jean. And could you also tell us what secondary picketing is? That's another term that we've seen recently. 
example, secondary picketing is no longer lawful, and it's where striking the striking workforce of one employer pickets the workforce of another employer, perhaps a customer or a supplier, to apply pressure on their own employer to reach an agreement because customers and suppliers are being affected. As I say, such secondary picketing is now unlawful, and I don't see that changing because the disruption to supply chains and to people not directly involved in the, dis the, the dispute can be very significant. And one of the main changes since the miners' strike is that picketing can now only be undertaken at the employer's place of business by a worker or an ex-worker, and it must be conducted peacefully. So often picket lines are very small. In other words, there really shouldn't be any intimidation on the picket line. And there is a code of practice on picketing, which, whilst it's not legally binding on trade unions, will be taking, taken into account by the courts when assessing the union's conduct. And Jean, just on this, you mentioned that industrial action usually happens where the employer recognises a trade union. But is that always the case? Well, well thanks, Catherine. That is an interesting one. And earlier this year, I did have a case where there was a part of the workforce had a recognised trade union and part of the workforce was, was, did not have any trade union. But the part that didn't have a trade union did come out in support of the trade union. So you can find if there is a trade union presence in the workforce, other employees will will join in with that dispute. Thanks. And the other you know, topic that's been sort of very much in the media recently is sort of potential changes to the law in this area. Um, there's been recent discussion about agency workers being able to take the place of strikers. Yeah, well, it's fair to say, Catherine, the Conservatives do quite often suggest changes to Tolreca and the other union legislation. And the one thing that is actively being talked about right now is allowing employers to hire agency workers to take the place of strikers. I understand that the government is said to be introducing legislation to repeal the law that prevented agency workers from being used in this way, which was in fact introduced by a Conservative government of Ted Heath in 1973. The government will probably introduce the changes quite quickly, possibly even this week, but they won't be able to take effect until at least July because they'll have to go through Parliament. So it'll be too late for the present strikes. And fans of the show Billy Elliot will recall the moving scene when Billy's dad breaks the strike and is driven through the miners, through the miners standing on the picket line. He was a miner who was breaking the strike and not an agency worker. But you can see what the reaction to such steps might be. We should not forget that it is only a few months ago that P&O were pilloried for trying to bring agency workers onto the ships to replace the redundant seafarers, and the agency workers themselves were not prepared to do it by and large. And you can see the same reaction possibly happening in this case, and there is the added difficulty of having properly trained agency workers to do work on the railways, which is skilled and which also has major health and safety issues. Thanks, Julian. And just looking ahead, you know, there's there's lots of talk now, isn't there, about, um, you know, this isn't potentially just going to be an, you know, an isolated week of disruption. I mean, do, do you think we're going to see disruption go on for a while? Could we sort of become a national strike? Well, the last national strike that we were involved in, Osborne Clark, you might remember, was the fuel strike. It feels like about 15 years ago now where we were advising private sector employers on how to deal with that issue. And you can see that with the current rail strike, there's a massive public and government pressure to try and resolve it. And both sides are continuing in negotiation because they very much feel that pressure. We could well be in for a summer of discontent, but there are a lot of hoops that the other unions in the teaching, health and other sectors will have to go through to achieve a successful ballot in support of industrial action. So 
to create a national strike and to bring all of those dates together is quite a long and complex process for trade unions and they're going to have to very work very hard to achieve that but we're just going to have to wait and see whether uh, we have a summer of discontent to match the winter of discontent in the 1970s we'll, we'll just have to see Catherine thanks Julian um, thank you so much for talking to us today it's really timely and helpful to get your insight into how industrial action works and obviously the rights and obligations for both sides of any industrial action um, just say thank you to everyone for listening and please do get in touch with Julian if you'd like any advice relating to our discussion today. Um, as we said, the team has a wealth of experience in this area, so please do give us a call.